Good morning. It's good to see all of you on this beautiful, chilly, but beautiful day. It's great to be here at First Community Church with all of you. I want to tell you a little bit about this sermon series before I begin this sermon and tell you a little background on it, how it was developed. We were on program staff retreat last fall when I asked all the program staff to name some of the topics and issues that they think we ought to deal with from the pulpit in the year to come. So we went through and brainstormed quite a list, got a long list of great ideas and such, and one of them was, how about a, a sermon? series that reflects on what it means to sort of rebuild our spiritual lives, to rebuild our souls, as it were, in, in, in the same way that we're doing all this construction work on our both our South and North campuses. Maybe that'd be a fun thing to do. And we talked about that a little bit more. And then Scotty Nickel, who's the executive director of Camp Akita, which is where we were on, on retreat, said, I got it, Hard Hat Faith. That's the title. And we, I, I said, yes, that is a perfect title. And so what we're going to do in this series the next four weeks is really look at four particular skills or gifts, we might call them, that will help us develop a, a, a serious kind of faith, a faith that allows us to deal with whatever comes at us uh, in this world. Uh, I think it's going to be kind of fun, and I hope that you, you will enjoy it with me as we go through uh, these different skills, listening both to contemporary voices and the ancient voice of Scripture. Let's pause for a moment of prayer as we begin, please. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for indeed you are our rock, our strength, our redeemer. Amen. The course of true love never did run smooth. If you're a fan of Shakespeare, you may recognize those words come from A Midsummer Night's Dream. The course of true love never did run true or smooth. In the same way, we'd say the same thing about our lives, could we not? The course of life never did run smooth. Now, maybe perhaps your life has been on a nice, gentle climb, and it's been perfect and fine and sweet, no problems, no errors, no hits, no runs, no errors, no mistakes, no sin. If that's true, well, well, good for you. But for the rest of us, I suspect we all have had our own bumps along the way. Sometimes they're a result of our own mistakes. Sometimes our own ego gets in the way and desires something, and because of that, we, we grab more than we should take, or we ask for more than we, should, than we need, or perhaps our ego gets in the way and causes us to be unkind to those we love the most, to fail in a relationship, or to become arrogant, rude, as Paul says in his letter to the church in, in Corinth. On the other hand, sometimes things happen in life that just come out of nowhere. A tree falls and it hits your car and you did nothing wrong, just the tree broke and fell and there it is. Sometimes, as the old bumper sticker says, stuff happens. Do you remember that bumper sticker? I think that's what it said, something like that. <laughs> the interesting thing I found, though, in, the, in my research for this, this sermon, this sermon series, is that no matter what problems we encounter, whether the ones that we cause ourselves or that are on the outside of us over which we have absolutely no control, no, no matter what we encounter, there are certain skills and, and tools that we might say or even gifts that will help us find the right attributes to overcome them. In fact, no matter who we are, these skills and tools tend to be the same. Uh, I, I've, do, I've done some research this week, and I read, read through an article in Psychology Today that described, for example, three categories of responses of students after they graduate 
and naming the ones that caused the students to do not so well and others to do much better. The, the, the sociologist, the psychologist in this research interviewed the dean of a law school and he said, tell me about your graduates. This dean had been there for many, many years. So I'm not talking about one generation or another. I'm talking about sort of an attitude he'd seen over decades in his, in his work as a, as a law professor, as the dean of this law school. He said there are three kinds of, of graduates that we see here. The first kind are victims. They don't get the job they wanted or they don't get the salary they wanted and so they begin to blame other people. They blame their professors, they blame the school, they blame the economy, they blame Washington DC, they blame their mom or their dad or somebody else and they're always constantly a victim, never ever accepting any kind of responsibility whatsoever. He said, that's the first kind that I saw. The second is a group I called, the dean said that I call the entitleds. These are ones who say, well, of course I should get this job because after all, it's me. Of course I should start at, right out of school at making a quarter of a million dollars a year because it's, after all, it's me and I deserve all these kinds of things. And then what happens, the same thing is similar to the victims. They don't get what they think they should get and so then they direct their energy at trying to determine who's really at fault. Somebody must be at fault out there in the world and that's why this hasn't happened for me. They want to find some way to punish those who wronged them. The third category, he said, are problem solvers. These students, these graduates also encounter issues, some of them their own, that result in them not getting the job they wanted. And while they might be momentarily disappointed, they push the disappointment aside and then try to determine, okay, where am I? Why did this happen? What can I do next time? How will I face this? Where can I begin again? How can I start over? They use those sort of tools. We might call that the tool of resilience. They become resilient in the face of adversity, solving the problem and then moving on forward. You don't need a PhD in psychology to determine which of those three groups tend to do the best in their careers in law. It's ones who are willing to check their own ego needs aside and find a way through whatever difficult path might be for, before them. Now, let me be clear too also as we talk about this today. I'm really not talking about success in life as measured by our culture. Too often our culture says success comes by the amount of money in your bank account or the amount of prestige in your job or the, the clothes that you're able to afford to buy or the car that you drive or where you go on vacation or any of that. None of those things are bad. Those things are all neutral. But sometimes we think that's the only sign of a strong and well-lived life. No. Our focus this month is about living a strong life, about living a life that is vibrant and, and lively. It's about finding a life that is more than willing to face whatever's happening around us and while moving forward in faith. A life that we're gonna focus on today that utilizes the, the tool of, of resilience. And one of the, the great places to find help on this is actually the sacred text that was read a few moments ago from Philippians chapter three. Paul gives us great insight, especially in verse 12 when he says that he has discovered and found the secret to this life. He's learned how to persevere in plenty and in want, in hunger and in satisfaction. Do, do you see what he's saying? He's essentially telling the church in, in Philippi, this Christian church that he's writing to, that no matter what's going on in my life, no matter what's happening around me, I know who I am and whose I am as a result of that, as one who lives under the teaching and life of Jesus Christ, the one who commands us to love, to love neighbor, love neighbor as self, to love our enemies even, because of that teaching, because of who I am and whose I am, no matter what's happening around me, I can move forward in faith. 
And, and just to make sure we understand how powerful this word is, it sounds simple, it sounds obvious, but understand, he's writing these words to the church in Philippi to the Philippian Christians from prison. He's been imprisoned for his faith. He's been imprisoned for teaching that God's love is, is given to the whole world, that God's love is for everyone and for all. In shackles, in chains, he writes, I found the secret to being content, to contentment in life. It's being who I am. By the way, I want you to know this. When Paul says, I found the secret, and when he also says, I've found how to be content, he's borrowing two different phrases from two different religions. That idea of finding the secret, the exact phrase is found in many mystery cults of the day, that there was a secret of life that one could find. That word on contentment comes from Stoic philosophy. So do you see what's happening here? I know I'm a Bible nerd, but this is so fascinating to me. Paul is reaching into this religion over here, into this philosophical idea over here, and he's bringing them into his own Christian faith and incorporating them because the words are true. Our church has always been a church like that, one that receives truth from no matter, the so no matter where it comes from. Whatever the source is, truth is truth, and we're never afraid of it. I think it's beautiful that Paul has found these truths and seen in them a reflection of the teaching of Jesus Christ and therefore finding the secret to contentment, the ability to be resilient in the face of whatever life might send at him. And that comes not from bucking it up, as it were, not from some sort of superhuman effort, I'm going to get through this, but rather through the recognition that Paul seems to be naming here, that he is who he is, and accepting himself as he is, that he can take on whatever happens next. Brene Brown writes about this very idea in her book, Braving the Wilderness. In her life, she never felt accepted. She never felt like she was ever really at home, like she ever, and this is her word, I, don't, I never felt like I belonged. In her family growing up, her family moved a lot from here to there and back and forth again. Went to several different schools, lived in several different houses from birth to age 17. And she writes in her book that she never really felt like she was at home anywhere. Constant change, constantly moving. And then her parents, when she was in high school, went through an ugly and awful divorce. And even home felt like a strange and sad place where, again, she didn't belong. But she writes in this book and says that sort of tortured her throughout her entire life. Even now, she's a well-known researcher and sociologist. She's written several books. She's, she's, she's on the Oprah circuit, as it were, speaking to large crowds and doing all this. And yet she still said to her husband one night a couple of years ago, I still feel like I don't belong. They had a hard conversation. And then he said to her, and I'm quoting, you will always belong anywhere you show up as yourself and talk about yourself and your work in a real way. Do you hear the simple beauty in what he's saying? You will always belong when you simply are you and you talk about yourself in your way, in a real way. Not a false one that the ego says you should be or, or ought to be, but the one that God created you to be and the one who you are. She also go up, she went on to reflect and say that most stories of, of pain and courage, of honestly reflecting on who we are and how we are and the way we live, most of those stories involve two things, prayer and cussing. <laughs> I, I, I kind of like that, frankly. In fact, she even goes on to say in, in the book that there was a particular place where she was speaking and uh, the organizer of the event told her about an hour or so before she was about to speak, you know, we, we think you're great, we're glad you're here, 
we've sold all, all, all the tickets, we've got a sold out house, it's gonna be marvelous, but you know, sometimes you work some swear words into your, your presentation, don't do that this time, would you please? Just don't do that for us. And she said, look, you know who I am, that's what I do, sometimes I just slip into the, into the lecture. I'm sorry, if you don't like that, I can leave now or I can do the work that I normally do. There's something wonderful about, about that sort of honesty. It's not so much about the cussing, it's about being who you are. But sometimes though, that honesty does leave us to say hard things. Several years ago, a woman came to see me in my office in the church I used to lead. Sweet woman, about five foot one, maybe 105 pounds, in her late 60s, just the, the embodiment of the Holy Spirit. She was a yoga teacher. She did all these marvelous things in the church. She volunteered with the homeless. She went on, on mission trips. I mean, all the kinds of things you can imagine. Just this saint of, of heaven. And yet she'd found out she had cancer. And she came to see me. And it was pretty scary. It wasn't hopeless. But she was worried about the chemo and the treatment and the medicine and all the rest. And she also, frankly, was angry. She said, I don't understand. I don't smoke. I don't drink. I exercise every day. I eat healthy. I do all the right things. And now this, out of nowhere, just out of nowhere, what have I done to deserve this? I'm so angry. And then for the next 45 minutes or so, she mostly wept. At the end of our hour, I, I asked her, what, what do you want to do now? She said, honestly, I want to tell God, these are her words, to go to hell. I said, good. <laughs> she smiled and said, really? <laughs> I said, yeah, go home. Go outside. Shake your fist at heaven and say those exact words. Tell God what you feel right now. A month later, she came back to see me. I asked how it was going. She said, well, the treatments are fine. The hope is, is there that I'm gonna get through all this. I'm still a little frustrated and I'm still a little angry, but I'm, I'm dealing with it. I've been cussing at God when I need to. I said, oh yeah, tell me about that. How did that go when you prayed? Did you? And she said, I did. And what happened? She said, I, this is gonna sound weird. This is gonna sound so strange, but I, I didn't hear a voice, but it's like the, my mind's eye saw these words that said to me, I'm already there. You see, you hear the beauty of, of, that, of that statement in expressing her anger, her frustration, her grief, in swearing at God because she needed to, she received the gift of God's presence. The, the promise that the ancient psalmist said, if I go to the highest heaven, you're there. If I find myself in the deepest, darkest pit of hell, even there, your spirit is with me. That word was spoken 2,500 years ago and it was spoken to her again in her backyard of all places. The gift of resilience, the skill of resilience is one that, that allows us to be who we are and to speak our word openly and honestly, trusting that God will receive us as our true selves. There, there's another highly intelligent woman uh, that I read, though she's not nearly as well known or published, as well published as Brene Brown, but she had an article recently where she stated, this big, beautiful world is not dependent on me being anything other than my true self. She was reflecting, and she'd been asked to reflect on what it means to be the spouse of a pastor. 
And she basically was saying being the, the spouse of a pastor is no more difficult than being the spouse of a firefighter or a CEO or somebody who manages a gas station. Being a spouse and being in a relationship is a hard thing regardless of what that person's position in life may or, or may not be. Life is hard and the best way to get through it is to be who you are, your own true authentic self. By the way, if you'd like to read the rest of that article, it appears in this month's First News newspaper from First Community Church. It's on page two, and the byline is Julie Miles. You can read that later if you'd like. You see, the Apostle Paul is saying something similar. The key to life is found in the ability to take whatever comes, knowing that the you, that's the you you are at your core, is enough. That you matter, that you count. It is also key to know what he does not say. He doesn't say that there are easy answers. He doesn't say that, that, that there's anything worth doing, that, that anything worth doing never comes with risk. No, in fact, if it's worth doing, it's going to be risky. You might fail. He doesn't say that we can stick our heads in the sand and just pretend everything will be better. No, he doesn't say that, that the real problems and difficulties of Christian life are just are easy to handle. No, in fact, think about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Have you loved your enemy this week? Have you forgiven someone? Have you loved your neighbor? Trust me, I asked those three questions and I challenge myself. It's a hard thing to truly follow in the steps of Jesus, to let his teaching, teaching guide who we are. Think of it this way. The one person in the world you do not want to ever see again right now, imagine they're sitting next to you and try to apply the faith that you have in the teaching of Jesus. Do you see how hard it is? So no, this is not a promise. This is not a promise that everything's just gonna be easy. No, without risk, no, there will be risk. It'll be challenging. But resilient, a resilient faith is one that begins with you being who you are and then taking on whatever comes before you. And by the way, I want you to know, this list applies not just to us personally, but it speaks to us congregationally. Too often in the church, we want quick, simple, easy answers. The ones that just say, oh, do this and do that and do the other thing and everything will be fine. Our offerings will pile up, our attendance will go crazy and everything will be wonderful. Nope, sorry, I wish that were true. It's not. In fact, one of the hardest things for a congregation to do is recognize that when the world is changing around them, the congregation is going to have to change too. Now, let's be clear that we understand what this means. Jesus' teaching is as true today as it was 2,000 years ago. The methods and the methodologies for living out that teaching are constantly changing. And in fact, in this world, they're changing faster than we could ever have imagined even 10 years ago. Kerry Newhoff is a, a Canadian pastor that I read often for his insights on leadership. He writes, too many church leaders and preachers are perfectly equipped to reach a world that no longer exists. Do you hear that? Thank you, David. Yes. <laughs> we see the world changing before our eyes. Rather than deal with the changes, sometimes what we do is we attack the change. One of my mantras has been that the message of Jesus, love and grace, never changes. But the tools we use must. I love what Deb Lindsay did on her final, our, our now former executive minister. I love what she did on her, on her final sermon. Were you here on that final day when she preached at both north or, or south? She took out her phone and she took a panoramic picture of the entire crowd. And, and no one wrote me an email and complained about that. It was a kind of a new experience for me because I did something like that about five years ago before phones and everything were so ubiquitous, so everywhere, and did a, had a technological Sunday or whatever we called it. And oh my goodness, did I get notes and letters? 
letters about how disrespectful we're being toward God. I don't think taking a photo in worship is being disrespectful toward God. It's a way of communicating with the world as it is today. The message doesn't change. The tools and the mechanisms do. Churches need to become resilient in facing these fast-moving changes so that we can continue to share the word that we have. We will experience vibrant and lively change when we find the courage to pivot as quickly as we need to constantly toward whatever works best. Why am I telling you this? Because the world is changing all the time. And resilient people like Paul are always willing to be who they are. In the church, it applies too. We are who we are. Our history, our past does not go away. But now in light of that past, where do we go today and tomorrow and beyond? Ultimately, the gift of resilience, I would proclaim, comes when we learn to practice that very teaching of Jesus, of learning to love our neighbor, of seeing in them a reflection of the very God of heaven. That's where the resilience comes. That's what Paul's writing to the church in Philippi about. Mark Iaconelli writes on spirituality. He says, and I think this applies today, in each encounter with another soul, we can be struck by beauty, changed by the heartbreak of another person's struggle, or we can become hardened, wounded, drawn into judgment and criticism, unable to apprehend that despite how they present themselves, the person in front of us embodies one of God's 10,000 faces. Do you hear what he's saying? We can encounter every person that we see as a reflection of, of the very God of heaven, the one who created them, or we can see them as a problem to be diagnosed and judged, as someone to be critiqued and pushed aside so that we can finally ignore them, which is as far away from the gospel of Jesus as you could possibly go. It's when we learn to let that love of neighbor guide us in everything we do and say that the resilience becomes a part of our souls. Mark goes on to tell a story about a time he and some other pastors were gathered to talk about their lives, their ministries, to share and support with each other. He said it kind of devolved a little bit into whining. One of the, one of the pastors said, you know, I love my church. I love worship service. It's the people I can't stand. That's a quote. It's in his book, The Gift of Hard Things. You can look it up. <clears throat> it it kind of got worse from there, I guess. And then somebody said, you know, I went on a spiritual life retreat last month, and it was wonderful. It was amazing. And the other pastor said, well, tell us about it. What was it like? Oh, it was great. Went down to New Mexico or somewhere, and, and we just had this whole week of prayer and meditation. It was great, except for the idiots. And he said, what do you mean by the idiots? Oh, there, was the, there were these two idiots that every day we did this guided meditation at one o'clock for an hour, and it was silent prayer incorporated with some guided comments from the spiritual director. It was just beautiful, but these idiots, they were a Midwestern couple, middle-aged, they would do strange things. They'd hum and laugh and giggle, and, and she would get up and dance around, and he would sit there in his chair and rock back and forth, and he'd start to laugh out loud. It was just so, they just ruined I, By Thursday, I stopped going. I just stopped going to the meditative prayer. I just couldn't stand it, being around those idiots. And they got into more complaining about church and that sort of thing. Three months later, Mark, who was in that group, met the spiritual director of that meditative prayer retreat. 
didn't tell him the story that he'd heard. He wanted to hear what the director thought of that week. He said, my friend who's a pastor was at your prayer retreat. How did it go in your, in your understanding? He said, oh my, it was so wonderful. It was one of the most precious retreats I've ever led. In fact, I learned so much, especially from, he said, this Midwestern couple, middle-aged, man and a woman. They'd come to the retreat because a year before their son had died. And they wanted to face the grief, the pain, the anger, the sorrow, the fear, and the worry. And every day I noticed that the man especially, during our quiet meditative prayer time, he would be in his chair and he'd rock back and forth a little bit, and then he'd start to chuckle. Sometimes he'd laugh out loud. Other times he would, it was like he was in part of a conversation, you just couldn't hear the other part. And he would say, uh-huh, uh-huh, oh yeah, oh uh-huh, oh yeah. And then he'd chuckle and laugh. Finally, on Thursday, I went to him and said, tell me, I've noticed during the prayer time in the afternoon that you're laughing and chuckling. What's happening? And the man turned to the spiritual director with tears in his eyes. He said, in that hour, I tried to imagine a time with my son when we were laughing, experiencing something wonderful. And I'd remember the story, and I started to talk to him about it, and I laugh in the conversation, and it, and it makes me feel like maybe he's okay now. Do you see the beauty of that story, the power of it, and the challenge? You see, resilience is not just about learning that, as that Midwestern couple did, to be open and honest about their pain, to find a way to deal with it and move forward in faith that somehow, even in the sorrow of death, God is present, but also for those of us on the outside who can never diagnose what's going on inside the heart and soul of another person, to receive them first and always as a child of God as one to be loved, accepted, and received. A hard hat faith is not a tough guy, grin and bear it, force your way through life approach, no, no. The gift of resilience invites us to both receive our pain, embrace it, name it, and recognize that every human being we encounter is going through the same life that we are. That's where it begins, and I believe that's where it extends forever to eternity. Amen.